Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. going to look at today, we're going to talk about God's heart for the nations and consider what our role is, what part we as the church play in the mission of God. It's really a privilege to open God's word to you and preach to you this morning. It's such a blessing to be able to spend time even this week studying God's word, allowing it to impact my own heart and then thinking of how to share these truths with you. Do you remember if you were here two weeks ago um, with our when our brother Akani uh, preached from Matthew chapter 9? We look together at God's heart for the lost, Jesus' heart for the lost, the tax collectors and the sinners. And we praise God because if Jesus had come only to save the righteous, none of us here today would be saved. And our prayer is that God would give us the eyes of Christ to see the lost in the world around us. And for each one of us to be moved by compassion for the lost to share the good news of the gospel. And so today I want to build on this. I want us to zoom out and consider not just Jesus' compassion in his day for the tax collectors and sinners, the sinners that were around him during his life, but God's heart for the nations revealed through all of Scripture. Missions and God's heart for the nations, this is something that's been on my heart for several months now. I got to take a class on the study of missions with a guy named Dr. Paul Aiken at the beginning of this year, and I was so blessed by spending just a significant amount of time seeing the mission of God and our role as a church from the pages of Scripture. So that's where a lot of these thoughts are going to come from that I'm going to share with you this morning. But before we open God's Word, I want to share with you a little bit about a watch. This isn't just an ordinary watch, but it's a very special one. Yeah, you can see the picture there. I don't know if you can tell, it's a very special watch. Sometimes I'm not sure why we wear watches. I know most of us carry phones around. Theoretically, I like I wear a watch most days. Theoretically, it's supposed to keep me from looking at my phone so much throughout the day. Well, that's not going very well so far. Um, but this watch, it's called uh, the Vacheron Constantine. And this watch is the most complicated watch in the world today. This one little watch, it's about this big. It took three master watchmakers eight years to build this watch. And in this watch, there are 2,800 components or parts. You can see all the different faces and dials, all the different things that it does, different features that it has. And some of the features as I was reading about it, they're just amazing. It has a calendar in it that adjusts for leap years and time changes depending on the season. It has a calendar that shows which constellations in the sky are visible each night. It has a Hebrew calendar, a lunar calendar, another calendar to keep track of the date of Yom Kippur. It has an alarm in it you can set to sing seven different songs and so many other. I think there's 57 different features, 57 different things that this watch does. This watch, it's pretty amazing to see, to consider how much skill and expertise went into manufacturing this. But if I was to hand you a bag 
filled with these 2,800 little tiny pieces and told you to put them together, you'd probably have no idea of where to start. Or if I didn't tell you what these pieces were, you might not even be able to recognize it. And I think in many ways, that's how many believers understand the Bible. Many people in the world understand their Bible. They might take one individual story out of the Bible and look at it, think about how it affects their lives, and then put it back in the bag. And we can often do this without recognizing that every sentence of Scripture, every individual story, every individual narrative, every book of the Bible is woven together into one grand storyline. When we look at one verse or one story in Scripture without considering the context of Scripture, the danger is is that we make God's Word about ourselves instead of recognizing its place in the divine revelation. And the mission of God that we're going to talk about today, his plan for redemption, is so much more complex even than this watch. This is a plan that is woven together over thousands of years and spans through the ages. The mission of God encompasses all of creation and the lifetimes of everyone who has ever lived and ever will live. God has orchestrated the rise of kings and kingdoms and the fall of nations and rulers and dynasties to accomplish his purposes. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the storyline of, of the Bible and specifically God's heart for the nations revealed through all of Scripture and look at a biblical theology of mission. So my goal for you today, if you take away one thing, is for you to see that there is one mission of God one story, one purpose, and one plan of God from eternity past and for all time. Missions is not just the Great Commission, that passage in Matthew 28 that we'll look at later. Missions is not just for evangelists on the street corners or for missionaries who go to distant countries, but missions is one of the central themes of all of Scripture. So as you understand the mission of God as unfolded throughout the pages of Scripture, this will help you to appreciate and rightly interpret individual events and stories and passages of Scripture. Instead of looking at a piece of a watch in a bag with thousands of other pieces, I want you to be able to take this piece and recognize its place in this incredibly designed masterpiece, the mission of God. I want us to see this together and to recognize our place as individual believers as the body here at Living Hope Church. So let's pray, and then we'll open our Bibles together. Heavenly Father, we are coming to your word, desiring to have ears to hear and eyes to see the truths that are contained within. Thank you for your word and the gift that it is. We pray that you would help our lives, our families, and our church to be shaped by your word and by your revelation to us. Pray today that you would help us to see a glimpse of your glory as revealed in your word, your glory revealed throughout the storyline of scripture. And help our understanding of who you are to be shaped, not by our own ideas, but by who you truly are. I pray that you would guard my words from error and help me to clearly explain these truths this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So to begin, I actually want us to take a glimpse at the end in the book of Revelation. So much like this watch that we talked about earlier, we need to see the end result in order to appreciate some of the individual parts. So before we even begin, I want us to consider the beauty of the end result of the mission of God, the wonderful work of God and salvation. You can read with me there in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. It says, After this I looked, 
And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is really remarkable. This is a beautiful picture of a day that I know that I long to see. I know all of you long to see. When there's a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue, people and nation, different backgrounds and countries and languages, all united by their worship for the Lamb who was slain for their sins, who redeemed and called them and loved them. We can't even imagine the joy that we're going to experience when we're gathered together with this multitude. What a sweet glimpse of glory that we have here in the book of Revelation. And this is what every believer should long for. This is the end goal of the mission of God. When all believers are gathered together around the throne, and He, our Savior, is receiving the praise that He deserves. So now that we've seen, we've looked at the end result, this beautiful glimpse of the result of the mission of God. Let's go back to the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, let's open to the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at the foundation of God's mission for redemption. And we don't have time today to look at every individual piece, but I do want us to fly over the storyline of Scripture. And as I do, I want to point out some highlights of the narrative of Scripture and help you to see the missional heart of God from Genesis to Revelation, to see how missions is at the very center of God's plan. God's desire is to be with his people and to receive the glory that he deserves. So as we see this, I want us to also consider what is our role? How do we fit in? What part do we have to play? So let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. And as we go through these passages, I know many of them are familiar, but as you listen, be reminded of God's plan for redemption, the incredible story of his heart for the nations. So in Genesis chapter 1, we know that the world was created by God out of nothing. And each thing that was created by God was described as good. All of creation was created as good and was created for God's glory. And the pinnacle of creation was the creation of man and woman. Unique from all creation, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and they were designed to live in relationship with God himself. And God instilled in them a love that's shown in four different relationships. They had a love for one another, they had a love for God, they had a love for self, and a love for God's creation. Let's read Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gave mankind a unique responsibility, a mandate to exercise dominion, to care for and to protect all of creation and over all the earth. And from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, man was created to live in relationship with God himself and to dwell with him. The mission of God beginning at creation has always been to receive glory and worship and for man to live and communion with him and worship him for who he truly is. 
But sadly, we know that this glorious state, it didn't last for long. But sin entered into the world. Just a few chapters later in Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve sinned against God. And now the consequences of sin impact every relationship. Because of sin, all of mankind now has a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with others, a broken relationship with himself and with all of creation. Every area of life has been impacted by sin. And this wasn't just true for Adam and Eve, not just for their children, but for all of mankind. A separation was created between men and God that could not be altered apart from him. But the mission of God would not be stopped. We know our Bibles not end in Genesis 1. He would not leave mankind to destruction. But even there in Genesis 3, verse 15, he provided a solution. And in Genesis 3, we see a glimmer of hope in the promise of a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, a redeemer who would come and make things right. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But despite this hope that was promised, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and death and the grave, there was still this separation between God and man. But God continued to work. One way we see this evident as we continue reading through our Bibles is his hand on the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God made a particular promise to Abraham, and through this covenant, this beautiful promise, God's heart for the nations would be displayed through Abraham and his descendants. If you want to flip to Genesis chapter 12, just a few pages later, let's read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." In this covenant with Abraham, God promises to make a great nation who will be a blessing. God's purpose in calling Abraham and his family was not just for their own benefit, for their joy, but so that through them, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Through this covenant, God's heart for the nations was displayed as he extended this blessing from Abraham and his family and their nation to all nations. And throughout the Old Testament, the mission of God was primarily active through his relationship with the nation of Israel. The people of Israel were to be a nation and kingdom that functioned like priests. Their task was to mediate God's blessing to the nations and to act as a model people that attracted all peoples to God. In Exodus 19, we read of the calling that God placed on the nation of Israel. It says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And this is what would shape Israel from this point on. They are to be a showcase people and to model before the nations and to embody the beauty of God's original design for human life. God gave them both an identity as a holy nation and a purpose to be a kingdom 
of priests. And he also gave them the law to guide their lives. And once again, God came close to dwell with man, this time through his presence in the tabernacle with the nation of Israel. And he also promised through his covenant with David that he would send a deliverer to save his people. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So through this promise, the Lord is speaking to David and of the blessing that would be upon his son Solomon. But more than that, God is promising to establish his throne forever, an everlasting kingdom. Once again, pointing to this promised Messiah, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and through whom man could dwell with God once again. We know that God's desire, his desire to display his glory through the nation of Israel, this wasn't the end of the story. The mission of God was not yet finished. And although God gave them the patriarchs, he gave them faithful leaders in the law, the nation of Israel continually failed and they fell short. Repeatedly they turned from worshiping the true and living God and they worshiped pagan gods and idols. And God rebuked his people. He would judge them. They would be punished by being delivered over to their enemies. But then over and over again, he would show his incredible mercy to them. He raised up the judges to deliver the people from their enemies. And he spoke to the nation of Israel through the prophets. Through these men, God promises that if Israel will return to them, that he will be gracious and continue to work with them. He also warns that if Israel continues to rebel, he will bring judgment and finally send them into exile. And as Israel's situation seems to be getting worse, there's more and more rebellion, more and more sin. The prophets promise that God has not given up. In fact, he promises that he will send a deliverer to usher in a reign of peace and justice. This promised king will achieve God's purposes for his creation. But sadly, the words of the prophets, they fall on deaf ears. So the nation of Israel is delivered into exile, and there they remain. They're waiting for a Messiah. They're waiting for a deliverer. They're waiting for redemption. And has God's plan failed? Absolutely not. He can't be stopped. His heart for the nations has not changed. His mission cannot be stopped. His aim and his kingdom cannot fail. But all of Israel is waiting for the promised deliverer to come. And after 400 years of silence, of waiting, of anticipation, a Savior comes. He's born, he's Jesus of Nazareth, and all the longings of God's people, all of their hopes and desires and dreams are fulfilled in him. And as Jesus comes, he announces that the kingdom of God has come in him. God himself has come to earth to be with his people through the man, Christ Jesus. And God is now acting in love and in power to restore creation humanity to live again under the kind rule of God, the way that God designed it to be in the beginning. Jesus identifies himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, as through him, ultimately, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the true descendant of David who would establish the kingdom of God and be seated on the throne. 
Now, Jesus is not the warrior king that Israel expected who would rescue them from their enemies. He is a humble teacher. He's traveling around and speaking of the arrival of the kingdom of God. He comes not at the head of a conquering army, but riding on the back of a donkey. And as Jesus ministers, he goes about gathering a small community of insignificant followers around him. And his disciples and these followers, they're the beginnings of a community of believers who would represent his name. And as he ministers, as his power is displayed, his humility and his grace, opposition to Jesus continues to grow. But he continues to speak to his followers. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of the way that the people of God are to live and be representatives of God. Much like the giving of the law in the Old Testament, Jesus is calling the people of God to be salt and light, to be a witness to the nations. He's helping them to understand that the kingdom of God will not come through revenge, but through forgiveness. The kingdom is coming not through power, but humility, not through the sword, but through the spirit. He's laying the foundations for the way that we as a church are to play a role in taking the good news of the kingdom of God to the nations. And we know how it continues, that though Jesus walked in holiness and perfection and in grace, that he would suffer an indescribable death. And that through Christ's death on the cross, God would accomplish his purpose to provide a rescue for a lost and broken world. At the cross, Jesus takes on the sin and brokenness of the world on himself so that the world might be healed. He takes the punishment for our sins that we deserved. Because of his death, it's now possible for the world and all people in it to be made right with God, for mankind once again to dwell with God. And how can we say this? How can we say that man can be reconciled to God? It's because of the resurrection. Because after Jesus' death and burial, God raised him from the dead. He walked out of the grave and he is alive today. He is seated on his throne, ruling and reigning. This is incredible news. So many people, even a crowd of 500, see Jesus alive. His resurrection is the sign of his victory over sin and death in the grave. It's the first evidence of a new world dawning. In him is the fulfillment of the promise of the gospel. He crushed the head of the serpent. He defeated sin and the death, death in the grave. And for you today, if you're here today and your trust is in anything other than this, anything other than the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, you are without hope in this world. But the free offer of grace is there. Repent and believe in Jesus and you will be saved. We know that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the great commission to his followers, this famous missions text that you might think of when we talk about missions. You often hear of people's last words. I don't know if you've heard of the last words of some different historical figures, the ones that they say on their deathbeds. But last words are meant to be lasting. And it's not by accident that the last recorded words we have of Jesus are the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Jesus says, this is the commission that he gives. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. The mission of God, his heart for the nations, is now displayed through his disciples and his followers. We, as the followers of Christ, are called to make disciples of all nations, to spread his glory once again over all the earth, to share of this good news. Where in the Old Testament, the nations were to come to Israel as the mediator of God's presence. They were a showcase of God's glory. Now, the disciples of Jesus are called to go to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And still, to this day, the mission of God continues through us as the church. And in the Great Commission, it's such such an encouragement. Jesus promises that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. This is made evident in the book of Acts as well, when we see the sending of the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, the very presence of God with us who comes just as the prophets and Jesus himself promise. The Spirit comes, intent on bringing the new life of God's kingdom to all who turn from sin and believe in Jesus and are baptized in this new community of believers. The church is established and it commits itself to doing those things that God promises to use to renew them. They devote themselves to the apostles' prayer, to the breaking of bread, And the church spreads from Jerusalem in the early days to Judea and into all of Samaria. And then a new center is established in Antioch. Here too, Jesus' followers, they embody the life of the kingdom of God, just like the Jerusalem community does. And the church in Antioch, this early church, serves as a launching point for the gospel to be spread throughout all the nations. We know that Paul and Barnabas are commissioned and sent Paul The Apostle Paul is transformed from one of the most feared enemies of the church into one of the most powerful ambassadors for the gospel to the nations. And this is where we get to our place in the story. The gospel spreads and God's heart for the nations is revealed through the good news spreading throughout the earth. Churches are established and God's people grow in number and the mission of God is not yet finished. This has continued over the last 2,000 years and it continues today and it will until Christ returns. Faith in Jesus brings the gift of the Spirit, a taste of the full kingdom meal that is yet to come. The church is now a preview of the coming kingdom of God. The church picks up on Israel's task of being a showcase of what God intends for human life. The church is to continue the kingdom mission that Jesus began among the Jews a kingdom established now among all the people of the earth. Our mission now encompasses all of creation. We are to be a community of believers that is a light to the nations. One passage that shows this so clearly is in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. The apostle is writing to local churches that were facing hostility and persecution, just like many churches in the world are today. And he was writing to them to encourage them in their faith, to strengthen them in the Lord, and to remind them of their mission, the mission of God. Let's read together uh, 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 9 through 10. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he's reminding them of their identity. 
And he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So living hope, a believer in Christ, this is speaking to you. You who once were far from God have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are God's people. You who are without hope in this world have received mercy through the Son. And the mission of God continues in and through the church. And you can see, I'm sure, as we've looked at the Old Testament, you can see how much Old Testament imagery is displayed in this description of the church. How many parallels there are between God's design for the nation of Israel and his calling for the church today. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He calls the church a chosen race. We are not the people of God by ethnicity, but now the blessings of Abraham are extended to the nations. We are chosen by God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we are the children of God. And we are to function as priests. In the same way that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests to the nations, we as the church are to function as God's royal priesthood, to represent God to the people around us, to be a light on a lampstand. And then what is our purpose? What active part do we now play in the mission of God? You can see it there in that passage. It says, We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to point to the attributes of God, his character and his mercy, to proclaim his excellencies, to share of the love displayed through Christ's work on the cross. We are to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, that men who have been separated from God by their sin can be brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the purpose of the church. This is our role in sharing God's heart for the nations. We are called to proclaim this joyful truth to all peoples. Psalm 96 uh, says it this way in Psalm 96 verses 3 to 4. It says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So have you tasted the goodness of God? Have you seen his marvelous works in your life? Then proclaim his excellencies, tell of his greatness, declare his glory among the nations. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here we can't live in the past, but it's good to look back and to remember from where you have come. You cannot know where you are or where you're going without understanding where you have been. To understand the privilege of our new identity in Christ, Peter calls us to remember what we once were. We were not a people. Outwardly, we were without hope. We were not a people, but now we have a new identity. We are the children of God. And inwardly, we had not received mercy, but now we have received the pardon for our sins. We have been declared righteous by the blood of Christ. The mission of God's people is to make known the good news of the kingdom. This is what gives our current day its meaning and purpose. And since the rule of Christ covers the whole earth, the mission of God's people is as broad as creation. God's people, we, are to live lives that say, this is how the whole world will be one day when Jesus returns. And so where is all this headed? Where does the story end? What does the future hold for the people of God? 
we know that the mission of God cannot be stopped. His purposes cannot be denied. There is nothing that can stop him. He will receive the glory that he deserves. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And every man, woman, and child who is created in his image, we are created to worship him. He will receive the worship and glory and honor that he deserves. Jesus is bringing the mission of God to a glorious completion, to a day when he will return in power and take us to be with him, and we will worship him for eternity. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 um, just have a beautiful picture of this. There's so many parallels between the very last chapters of the Bible and the very first chapters of the Bible. But in Revelation 21 and 22, we see that we will enjoy a new heavens and a new earth. We will live in intimate and personal communion with God. We will no longer experience the horrible effects of sin that we see all around us. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This new Jerusalem will be like a perfect city, a perfect temple where we will commune with God and be with him for eternity. It will be like a perfect garden, all of this pointing back to God's original plan in creation to be with his people. And we will dwell with our God in perfection. He will be our God and we shall be his people. The last chapters of Revelation, they point us to the restoration of the glory of God's creation. And the Bible ends with a promise. It's repeated three times. It says, I am coming soon. And we echo, just like the author of Revelation, who says, yes, come, Lord Jesus. We long for this day. So what a joy it is to see our place in the mission of God, that God's heart for the nations is now displayed through the church, through believers like you and me. And we are called to be representatives and ambassadors of Christ, proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness. We can have absolute confidence because our confidence is not in ourselves, but our confidence is in the mission of God. His kingdom cannot be stopped. The book of Habakkuk 2.14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord is at work. He's transforming hearts. He's changing lives and filling the whole earth with his glory. This is the mission of God, and we are called to join in. There's so much more that could be said, so many other beautiful passages that we could look at, but just a few thoughts of application. In humility, we should be reminded of our own insignificance. This is a good thing. This is a blessing. God didn't need to use human beings to make his glory known, but he has chosen to reveal himself to the world through us. Despite our weakness, he has called us as his ambassadors. We don't take any pride in our own abilities. We have nothing to offer on our own. We have everything to offer because of Christ and the good news of the gospel. So we should be humble, but we should also be encouraged by the importance of our calling. What a joy it is that God has chosen to use us. However weak you might feel, whatever challenges you face, God has chosen to use you to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. So we need to recognize the role that we have to play and the strength that he gives us to accomplish it. And then finally, we should pray. We should pray with confidence 
knowing that his kingdom will advance, that Christ will return. We long for that day and that he will receive the worship that he deserves. And so let's do that now. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, your plan for redemption is so much more than we could ever conceive of. God, your desire to redeem a people for your own possession, the eternal love that you have for creation, to redeem a people and call them by name, to save us by the blood of your precious Son. What incredible love you have displayed towards us. And we who have received this love, who have seen the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, we are eternally grateful. Help us to see the significance of the calling that you've given to us as believers. Help us to see the task before us. Help us to boldly proclaim the message of your kingdom until you return. We do pray that you would return quickly. We long to be with you. We long for that day when we will be gathered together with a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But until you do come back, sustain us by your grace. Keep us by your power and guard us by your presence. God, we love you and are so thankful for you. Thank you for your love for us and that you have shown us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.